Welcome to Fight Back Radio, the Marxist voice of labor and youth in Canada, and the best source for a revolutionary analysis of current events, perspectives, and theory. The fight for women's liberation is one of the most burning issues in the labor movement, and has been for over a hundred years. While we have come a long way in Canada, women continue to be an oppressed group under capitalism, and our basic rights are constantly under attack. What is the best way forward for the women's movement? The struggle against oppression is fundamentally divided into two camps, which have different demands and tactics, Marxism and identity politics. In this episode, Atefa Akbari, an activist from La Repose Syndicale, discusses why identity politics can't liberate women. we are so far from women's emancipation, and we only have to listen to the news to be reminded of it. We regularly see headlines about women who are murdered by their partners, or sexual abusers who are found not guilty. So many young people and workers are radicalized by the state of affairs and join the struggle against the oppression of women. However, for the struggle to be victorious, we must have the right ideas and methods. Currently, the left is dominated by identity politics. Most of the time, the focus is on the identity of people instead of the ideas they represent. Instead of aiming for revolutionary change in society, the focus becomes changing the discourse, undoing cultural constructs of power, increasing representation, and challenging norms by relying on tokenism, language, and symbolism. However, more and more people are questioning identity politics and looking for alternative ways to fight oppression. These seemingly progressive ideas have turned out to be the opposite. The concrete results of applying these ideas in the movement are performative at best, but often counterproductive and even harmful. So that's why more and more people are questioning identity politics. However, no alternative is offered to these ideas, and this is why we're holding this discussion today. So some people may perceive ideas as something completely abstract, as if they fall from the sky. There is this illusion that there is one set of ideas, and then this other set of ideas, and that they are all equivalent. But ideas do not exist in the abstract. Marx explained that ideas do not fall from the sky, but are a reflection of the objective conditions, social pressures, and contradictions that exist in people's lives and in society. Often, ideas are a reflection of class pressures. So there is not a precise and direct cause-effect relationship, but it is a general rule that allows us to better understand different ideas so that we can differentiate between them. So with this in mind, it is important to go over the historical epochs in which different ideas arose to understand what pressures they reflect and what their function is. So the struggle of women's emancipation has been a cornerstone of the international socialist movement since its inception. Marx and Engels wrote about the oppression of women in the Communist Manifesto and in the book The Origin of the Family, Private Property and the State. As early as 1848, in the middle of a revolutionary wave sweeping Europe, they explained the oppressive role of the bourgeois family as an economic unit. They put forward the demand for its abolition and the need to overthrow the capitalist system to achieve it. Since this time, Marxism has always been at the forefront of the fight for the emancipation of women. But Marxism 
was not the only method that existed in the movement. After the defeat of the Paris Commune, there was a period of economic growth and an ebb in the class struggle as the revolutionary wave subsided. This is when we saw the rise of the first wave of feminism in the capitalist countries of the West, especially in Britain. So this is what is commonly referred to as the suffragette movement. Instead of fighting against capitalism, this feminism focused on the issue of identity and tried to unite all women in the struggle to win reforms and rights for women. So this movement was largely dominated by bourgeois and petty bourgeois women who actually only fought for this to get the same rights as men of their own social class. So for example, the right to vote was demanded only for women who were property owners, while still millions of working class men and women still did not have the right to vote at a time. So to counter this rise of bourgeois feminism, in 1910, nearly 100 Marxist women from 17 different countries held a socialist women's conference, and they voted to create the International Working Women's Day, which has since lost the word working in its title today. But the purpose of this day of protest was to put forward a united struggle of the working class against the oppression of women and against capitalism. So um, a few years later, the Russian Revolution of 1917 gave the, moment, the movement an incredible boost. In the early days of the Soviet Union, huge advances were made for women. They had the right to vote, easy access to divorce and abortion, measures were taken for the socialization of domestic tasks. It was truly an inspiring event for the working class and oppressed women everywhere. Um, it was under the pressure of the movement and the threat of revolution that some advanced capitalist countries followed suit by granting certain rights to women workers. So at that time, the emancipation of women was clearly linked to the struggle against capitalism. However, this link between Marxism and women's emancipation was subsequently tainted by the Stalinist degeneration of the Soviet Union. All the rights that Russian women had gained as a result of the revolution were taken away one by one. Under Stalin's influence, there was this chauvinist attitude towards the status of women, which started to infect the communist parties all around the world. So another factor that distanced the women's movement from the class struggle was the post-war boom. In the advanced capitalist countries, thanks to the enormous economic growth, the capitalists were able to make concessions to the working class and there was a period of class peace. It seemed that the working class would no longer rise up against capitalism and any prospect of socialist revolution seemed to be lost. During this period, there was a new wave of feminism known as the second wave, which again, generally focused the struggle on identity and small reforms within the capitalist system. So the point I'm trying to make is that identity politics tends to gain in popularity and spread, not in times of revolution, but in times of lull in the class struggle. So, uh, but another revolutionary wave swept the world in the late 1960s and throughout the 1970s with uh, large revolutionary movements in countries all over the world. So in the space of a few years, the world capitalist capitalist system was shaken to its roots by big events, by big events, such as the May 1968 general strike in France, the civil rights movement in the United States, 
In Quebec, there was the Common Front General Strike of 1972, uh, which threatened to overthrow the system. So in these revolutionary movements, the general mood was that society had to be transformed and the capitalist system needed to be overthrown. During May 68, the Paris Stock Exchange, which was the symbol of French capitalism, was the target of attacks. In Quebec, the unions published revolutionary texts. To demonstrate this revolutionary mood, I'm going to quote from a manifesto published in 1971 by one of the main union federations of, the Quebec, of Quebec, CSN. It said, Capitalism and foreign domination of our economy are the direct causes of unemployment and the impoverishment of a growing number of workers. The workers of Quebec now know that they can count neither on the national capitalists nor on a government at the service of the capitalists and the imperialists. So this was the mood at the time. Unfortunately, despite the courage and braveness of the activists of the time, these movements did not lead to a revolutionary transformation of society for various reasons that I do not have time to cover. Um, but on the other hand, these defeats and the subsequent ebb in the class struggle paved the way for an ideological reaction. So following the defeats of these movements, more and more intellectuals in Western universities drew pessimistic conclusions. It is in this context that philosophical critiques against materialism and Marxism in particular developed. Postmodern philosophy gained in popularity. So postmodernism is a philosophical trend which reflected the prevalent demoralization at the time. This is manifested in a complete rejection of the possibility of progress in history. Postmodernism also rejects what are called meta-narratives, which basically means a unified method to explain the world, the development of history, and the origins of oppression. Marxism, liberalism, or any other unified theory are labeled as modern and therefore rejected. So postmodernism as a philosophical current is an attack in particular on Marxism, which is described as dogmatic or deterministic. Instead of offering an objective way of understanding the functioning of society, the focus is increasingly on subjective experience based on identity. Instead of recognizing that the capitalist system is an objective, material reality, we are told that a language is an objective reality and that the system we live in is composed of systems of ideas. <clears throat> so in the words of uh, post-structuralist feminist Chris Whedon, uh, language, far from reflecting an already given social reality, constitutes for us a social reality. There is no meaning beyond language. End of quote. So with the rise of this kind of ideological reaction, the emphasis of the struggle had shifted from a revolutionary transformation of society to symbolism, identity, words. Instead of objectively analyzing the reasons for the failure of the movements of the 1960s and 1970s, the intelligentsia sank completely into pessimism. By abandoning a class analysis of oppression, they began to focus on condemning, condemning behavior and language. Uh, in, the leftist in the leftist organizations and unions, the working class was in retreat which left the field open for the reformist and careerist elements who flourished in this context. So this general demoralization and distancing from the methods of class struggle 
had an impact on the movement for women's emancipation. It reinforced the perspective that women's struggle must be waged separately from the class struggle. Increasingly, Marxism was criticized for being classist and reducing everything to class, which is completely wrong, but I will come back to that later. So it was in this period that identity politics developed in the movement against oppression and really gained in popularity. So according to these ideas, a person would be defined primarily by their identity instead of the ideas they stand for. So it is said that in order to fight against the oppression of women, what is needed is more woman represent representation in positions of power, for example, independently of the ideas they defend. So, um, for example, some people put forward the idea that supporting the Democrats and the fact that Kamala Harris would become vice president would, have, would be a breakthrough for all women of color. So this was in spite of the fact that Kamala Harris's ideas and positions or are far from being progressive. So she opposes Medicare for all. She served as California's attorney general in a justice system that, as you all know, implemented policies that negatively affects people of color. She fought hard to keep innocent people in jail and failed to fight against uh, corrupt cops. So um, class politics is alien to identity politics because class is only interpreted as um, just another form of identity. And like I said, the term classism is used to refer to it uh, instead of explaining the objective exploitation of the working class due to its relationship to the means of production. So uh, increasingly, the idea was put forward that the struggle against oppression must be led only by those who suffer directly from that specific oppression, again, regardless of their ideas. So. It is up to women to fight against patriarchy. The struggles against different forms of oppression are all portrayed as separate struggles. Women's oppression is explained to be caused by patriarchy, which is uh, defined as a structure of male domination over women that they claim is an ideological system separate from the capitalist system. So the main problem with this approach is that by elevating a person's identity as the basis for unity in struggle, it assumes that all people of the same identity have the same interests. It opens the door to inviting all women, regardless of social class, to join the movement. But are they correct? Should we always support a woman regardless of her political position? I think we uh, just have to look at what that means concretely in the movement. So uh, in Quebec, during the National Council of Quebec Solidaire in 2019, there was a debate on the party's position on whether or not to support the ban, uh, of the wear uh, the ban on the wearing of religious symbols by public employees as recommended by the Bouchard-Taylor report. So I don't think I need to go into details uh, on the oppressive nature of this ban, which was essentially an attack on Muslim women. What is interesting for our discussion today is the identity of the people on both sides of this debate. So on one side, we had Ruba Ghazal, uh, which is a woman who is a woman of color born in Lebanon to a Palestinian and Muslim family. Identity politics advocates would, would tell us that there is no better person to know about the oppression of Muslim women, and therefore we should support the position that she puts forward. The problem though, is that she supported the Bouchard-Taylor compromise despite the fact that, and I quote her, 
the ban on religious symbols may prevent a small number of people from gaining access to certain positions or cause them to give up, to give up wearing them in order to gain access. Immigrants accept that the Quebec nation can define life and society as it sees fit, even if this may sometimes go against certain individual rights." End of quote. So not only did she support the loss of jobs for Muslim women, she actually used the fact that she is a person of color to speak for all immigrants. Anyway, on the other side of the debate, there was Sol Zanetti, a white man. Already on this basis, many identitarians would have told him that it was not his place to intervene in this debate and to leave room for voice for the voices of women of color like Ruba Gazal. But in fact, Zanetti had a much better position in this debate, and I quote, The CAC uses the wearing of religious signs to distract us from the real power, the one that is constantly hijacking our democracies, the power of money, end of quote. So quite correctly, Zanetti explained that this is a debate that only serves to divide and distract the Quebec working class. Um, so as this example uh, demonstrates, the idea of supporting someone on the basis of their identity can lead to supporting positions that do not represent progress for the movement. On the contrary, it can even turn into a useful tool for the right wing to co-opt the struggle. Uh, I think we can all remember uh, when Madeleine Albright introduced Hillary Clinton during the 2016 election campaign by saying there's a special place in hell for women who don't help each other. Um, so um, another method of identity politics is calling for non-mixed spaces, which consists of establishing spaces, events, even demonstrations where men are excluded. So political scientist and feminist Françoise Verger Explain, explains this tactic by saying, the oppressed can't put words to things if the oppressors are present, end of quote. So as Marxists, we completely agree that it is important for people who are oppressed to have access, access to a safe space, such as shelters uh, for women only uh, for people who are victims of domestic violence. However, generalizing this to the entire movement only serves to divide us to reinforce the idea that all men are oppressors, which ultimately only weakens the struggle. For example, on International Women's Day 2018 in Spain, several unions, as well as some feminist organizations, called for a 24-hour general strike. However, some feminist leaders of the strike said that men should not participate in the strike and that their role should be to replace the, stri the striking woman at work. So basically, they argue that the men should act as scabs and weaken the struggle. If the women were replaced at work, the strike actually loses its impact. So this, this example shows how damaging these ideas can be to the movement when they're applied concretely. For Marxists, the best way to combat the prejudices that men may have about women equality is to incorporate them into our struggle and make them aware of our problems and show them that we are stronger if we unite. So uh, to come back to the historical context, in the 1980s, the labor movement suffered some big defeats. There was the defeat of the miner strike in the UK, the air traffic controllers in the US, uh, just to name two of the most obvious setbacks for the movement. This was also the period uh, of the reign of the of re reactionary leaders such as Mulroney, Reagan, Thatcher, 
And on top of this, there was the dissolution of the Soviet Union and the restoration of capitalism. It was said that this marked the end of history, meaning that communism had failed and capitalism had won. Revolutions were said to be a thing of the past. So this context really added to the pessimism of left-wing academics, who moved even further away from Marxism and class struggle to embrace identity politics. Since it was not a threat to, to the ruling class, identity politics was institutionalized in the state apparatus on the one hand with the creation of women's ministries and the opening of women's research centers, and on the other hand, through the creation of cultural circles focused on individual experience, language, and single-issue campaigns. So these circles were largely dominated by petty bourgeois white women who were unaware of the reality and needs of working-class women of color. So in response to this, the intersectional school of thought emerged. So the term intersectionality was originally coined by Kimberly Crenshaw, an African-American law professor um, in response to the U.S. criminal justice system uh, because they would refuse to acknowledge that black women experience discrimination on multiple grounds, not just as women or as black people, but as black women. So this idea that black women and other groups are discriminated against on multiple levels is correct. And Marxists have no disagreement with the fact that there are multiple forms of oppression and that some people experience multiple forms of oppression simultaneously. However, this idea is only the tip of the iceberg of intersectional theory. What is important is not this observation per se, but the explanation behind it. So to explain the various forms of oppression, intersectional feminist bell hooks say that it's like a house. They share the foundation, but the foundation is the ideological beliefs around which notions of domination are constructed. So what this means concretely is that because people believe in oppressive ideas, those oppressions persist. Thus, that oppression is maintained and reproduced only in the world of ideas without a material basis. So it follows that the task is then to convince the world to change the way they think instead of blaming the system which needs sexist ideas. So since intersectionality complete, completely ignores the material basis of sexist ideas and no real explanation is given as to why people have these ideas, it becomes impossible to really fight against these ideas. So instead of targeting the economic system that needs oppression to sustain itself, the target of the struggle becomes individuals who do not suffer from the particular form of oppression. These people are referred to as privileged. So according to the concept of privilege, those who are not victims of a form of oppression have an interest in perpetuating that impression. So in the words of Frances Kendall, a proponent of intersectionality, she says, all of us who have racial privilege, which all white people have, and therefore have the power to translate our prejudices into law are racist by definition because we benefit from a racist system. End of quote. So instead of finding a basis of unity for a common struggle of all the oppressed, intersectionality helps to divide the movement and spread the lie that it is in the interest of some to maintain the oppression of others. The truth is that the only ones who really benefit from oppression are the capitalists. For example, it is true that men have higher wages than women, 
but it would be wrong to say that this discrimination isn't in the interest of male workers. This is because if one layer of the working class is oppressed, it automatically weakens the common struggle for better wages. If one sector of the working class, like women or immigrants, receives lower wages and poor working conditions, this places a downward pressure on the working conditions for all workers, including men. So this exclusionary attitude towards the privileged is also related to the concept of allies. So basically, since men are privileged, they must limit themselves to the role of ally to the, to, uh, the woman who lead the movement. What is the role of an ally? It is to support and listen to women, to do introspection, to change their oppressive nature, and to not take up space in the movement and, and also amplify the voice of women. So again, we find ourselves in a position that assumes that all women have the same interest. As allies of women's emancipation, should men in France, for example, support Marine Le Pen and, ampli and amplify her voice? Obviously not. <laughs> um, but th that would be the logic. Um, so unfortunately, intersectionality persists in dividing the movement into endless identity categories according to a hierarchy of privilege. People who honestly want to fight sexism are denounced for their privileged position, but no concrete solutions are offered. According to Patricia Hill Collins, and I will quote her, the overarching matrix of domination houses multiple groups each with varying experiences with penalty and privilege that produces corresponding partial perspectives. No one group has a clear angle of vision. No one group possesses the theory or methodology that allows it to discover the absolute truth. So this sums up Patricia Hill Collins' postmodern view that it is impossible to have an objective unified method based on the study of the past to fight oppression. This is really a sterilizing idea which disarms us in the face of oppression. If there is no objective truth, how do we organize to emancipate ourselves? The logical conclusion of intersectionality is that no one can offer a general solution to oppression since everyone has a unique experience of it. It is really a pessimistic philosophy since it does not offer solutions. <clears throat> so contrary to what intersectional theory suggests, Marxists believe that it is possible to objectively analyze society in order to uh, ascertain what are the best methods to fight oppression. So in order to understand how to get rid, uh, how to get rid of oppression uh, in society uh, once and for all, it is important to understand the, its origin. Have women always been oppressed? In fact, for most of our existence, human beings did not live in class societies. In these societies, which Marxists call primitive communism, there was no oppression of women either. It is true that there was some division of labor between the sexes, but this division of labor was not coerced or forced on women, and women were definitely not considered inferior to men. Quite the contrary. So, as the reproducers of our species, women were held in high regard. It wasn't until the agricultural revolution when humans found the means to create a surplus product above immediate consumption that this changed. This meant that some could live off the labor of others. This triggered a process which permanently altered the way society was organized. It led to the emergence of differentiation between members of society, 
the division of society into social classes, and also to the emergence of private property, which led to, the, to a transformation of the attitude towards women. Marriage was established as an institution to control women's sexuality in order to ensure the paternity of children to whom the inheritance was passed on. Engels, one of the founders of Marxism, saw the birth of the nuclear family as the historic defeat of the female sex. He wrote, Man has taken command in the home as well. Woman has been degraded and reduced to servitude. She has been transformed into a slave to his lust and into a mere instrument for the production of children. End of quote. Thus, the oppression of women finds its origin in the division of society into classes. And therefore, in order to fight against the oppression of women, we must also fight against class society, which can only be accomplished through a revolution that overthrows the capitalist system. So for Marxists, the emancipation of women is an important issue. As I have just explained, the struggle against the oppression of women is linked to the struggle against capitalism. But this does not mean that we're going to wait for the abolish, abolition of social classes to improve the living conditions of women. Marxists fight against all forms of, of oppression and discrimination in the here and now at every opportunity. We participate in daily struggles and put forward concrete demands uh, <clears throat> like uh, against discrimination in society and in the workplace, equal pay for equal work, access to abortion, a job and a home for everyone, free high quality childcare, and so on. Marxists don't just have a list of demands. We also have an idea of how we can win them. If you look at the history of women's rights, no rights were granted by the goodwill of capitalists and their lackeys in government. It is under the pressure of class struggle and the fear of revolution that politicians have granted the reforms won in the past. The right to vote for women was granted in most Western countries in the period following World War I and the Russian Revolution. Revolutions and mass movements were coming in like a wave and seriously threatening the capitalist system. The strength of these movements and the reason for their success consisted in their power uh, in, their, uh, in the balance of power that they had in face of the ruling class. To be victorious, the struggle against oppression and for any reforms should not rest solely on the shoulders of the group experiencing that particular oppression or discrimination, but must involve the entire working class and all oppressed groups. We must actively fight against any attempt to divide the working class, since our strength lies in our unity and a gain for one, for one part of the working class is a gain for the whole working class. And even if reforms have been won, Marxists have no confidence in the capitalist system, which can take away past gains at any time. This can be seen in the renewed attacks on access to abortion. So to end the oppression of women once and for all, we must abolish the capitalist system that profits from this oppression, which it depends on to survive. This does not mean that we can get there without the daily struggle for reforms. It is precisely through the struggle for partial gains and reforms that the working class as a whole develops its consciousness, realizes its own power, and realizes that it can change society. But why are we talking about this ideological debate today? What is at the heart of this issue? Well, we just have to look at the historical context in which we live today. Capitalism is going through the worst crisis in its history, and bourgeois economists have no solution except to print more money and inject trillions of dollars to save the market. 
While money is being thrown at the bourgeoisie and big business, the working class is left to fend for itself. Unemployment rates are on the rise, and more and more people are, li are living in food insecurity and precariousness. This situation leads to mobilizations and revolts, and this is exactly what we see all over the world. Last week, there we saw a revolutionary movement in Senegal, and before that, <clears throat> it was in Myanmar. Uh, every week, almost, when you, when you pay attention to the news, you see new mass movements erupting everywhere. So in this context, the bourgeoisie needs a scapegoat for the misery in which the workers find themselves. So they use one of the oldest tricks in the book, divide and conquer. With their monopoly on the media, the state, the education system, the ruling class foments divisions based on gender, religion, ethnicity, you name it. And identity politics plays a pernicious role in, in the, augmenting these divisions and weakening the movement. So I want to emphasize that these divisions in society are not due to the fact that people are stupid and they have been brainwashed by the media, but that these discriminatory attitudes have a material basis. Capitalist society can't provide a good standard of living with a good job and good housing for everyone. So competition and the shortage of good jobs means that different layers of the working class end up in competition for uh, these jobs and they end up blaming each other for the poor living conditions they find themselves in. But it doesn't have to be this way. There is more than enough wealth to provide everyone with good jobs and good living conditions. The problem is that under the capitalist system, it is a small minority of society that appropriates the majority of the wealth, and the rest of society is left to fight each other for the scraps. As I mentioned earlier, the only ones who benefit from oppression are the capitalists, and they need to actually maintain this oppression to keep the working class divided. What Marxists say is that in order to fight against the oppression of women, we must fight against capitalism. A socialist transformation of society would abolish social classes that are the basis of oppression. By nationalizing the command, commanding heights of the economy and placing them under democratic workers' control, we can provide good living conditions for all. For the struggle to be victorious, we need the fullest unity of the working class, not just for the emancipation of women, but for the emancipation of all humanity. Thank you for listening to Fight Back Radio. Fight Back is a revolutionary organization fighting for the socialist transformation of society. We are the Canadian section of the international Marxist tendency. We actively seek to educate workers and youth in the genuine ideas of Marxism in order to fight back against capitalist attacks and austerity and bring an end to capitalism. However, we won't be able to do this on our own. So if you agree with us, get involved. We can be found online at marxist.ca, on Twitter, Facebook, and TikTok at Canada Marxists, on Instagram at Socialist Fightback, and on YouTube as Fightback La Riposte. For international news and analysis, check out In Defense of Marxism at marxist.com. The music in this episode was General Strike by Soul Jazz Orchestra. They can be found at souljazzorchestra.com.